0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. The word of the Lord. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, Of us all. Here ends the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 14. We'll be reading through verse 17 this morning. And I'll remind you, this is the third in a series of healing miracles that Jesus is doing immediately after he has come down the mountain, having taught the Sermon on the Mount. First, he had healed the leper. Then, he had healed the centurion servant with just a word. And now, as you'll see, he heals Peter's mother in law. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 14, the word of our God. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here end the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This morning's passage is fundamentally christological; that is, it tells us about the awesome power of Jesus Christ to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And it is decidedly not about those who are being healed. It is about Jesus himself, who is our Messiah. And yet this passage is about more than Christ's extraordinary power. Jesus does not appear on the pages of Scripture like a comic book figure like Superman, that the bullets just bounce off of his chest. This passage in the context of Matthew as a whole and of the rest of the Scriptures reveals to us the tenderness and the love of God found in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus doesn't simply heal people and redeem us by his sheer power. Rather, he heals and redeems us by going to the cross and suffering and dying in our place. The power of Christ unto your salvation runs through the cross. We are going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, Christ has the power that each of us needs. Second, Christ has the power that all of us need. And third, Christ's healing power flows from the cross. Let me give those to you again. Christ has the power that each of us needs. Christ has the power that all of us need. And Christ's healing power flows from the cross. We begin with the wonderful truth that Christ has the power that each of us needs. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Now, this this story is actually um, recounted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And and Mark tells us that Jesus goes up the mountain. He teaches the entire Sermon on the Mount. He heals the leper, and he heals the centurion all in a single day, which was the Sabbath day. That means Jesus is coming home, coming coming back down the hill, obviously exhausted by the incredible burden that he had been bearing that day, going into Peter's house, seeking to find some rest, and it was still on the very same Sabbath day that he encounters Peter's mother-in-law with a need, and our Savior meets that need with his own touch. There are a few details in this passage and related passages which I confess are not of great theological importance. Uh, Nevertheless, they're actually helpful for us to think about because it will help us see the reality of the life that Jesus' disciples were living, so that we don't imagine that they were living in some strange other sort of world than the one that we to have. These details help us flesh out what Jesus was doing within the actual reality of life in first century Judaism. Uh, Peter's house was in Capernaum. Uh, that was our Lord's home base while he ministered throughout Galilee. And it's possible that Jesus was actually staying with Peter uh, at this time. Whenever he would be back there in Capernaum, he would just you know, pull up a mattress or a bed there in, in Peter's house, and he would stay there. However, Matthew also tells us, back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, that Jesus had settled in Capernaum before he formally called the fishermen to be his disciples. And this may suggest that Jesus had a house of, in Capernaum ...that was his own. Peter, of course, was married. I say, of course. But I suspect that unless you're thinking about this passage... ...you don't think about Peter being married at all. Um, And yet, we're told explicitly that he has a mother-in-law... ...and the only way you get a mother-in-law... ...is by getting married. Uh, You can't adopt mother-in-laws. Turns out that later on, 25 years or so later... ...when Paul writes 1 Corinthians... Paul will also point out that Peter, like the other apostles, was married. Paul asks this, Do we, right, that's Paul and Barnabas, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas being another name for Peter. Both during Christ's earthly ministry... And a quarter of a century later, Peter was a married man. Um, So much for Peter being the first pope, with the Roman Catholic Church insisting that ordinarily priests should be celibate. By the way, you'll also notice that Paul says, and the other apostles. right? Being married and leading in the church was actually normal. Not required, but normal. This is why this is helpful for us. What we need to see in this passage is the reality of life for the early disciples. Peter had a wife and an extended family. See, whether or not Jesus was living in Peter's house with him, um, it was very common. We're so used to thinking in nuclear families. We all get our own little homes with a couple of children. Um, It is very common for people to live in extended families. And actually, Mark also tells us it was Peter in Andrew's house. He was living with Andrew, his brother. Oh, and his mother-in-law, well, and his wife, and we don't know how many other people. And whether or not Jesus was staying in that house with him or right down the street, there would have been an extended cluster of people around the disciples. Don't imagine that it's Jesus with 12 bachelors who are all young men wandering around doing this unique ministry that you could not possibly engage in because you have family responsibilities. What you have to imagine here in your mind, and I mean this in a sanctified way, is that when Jesus and his disciples come back to Capernaum, there there's this broader group of people made up of spouses and children and parents and grandparents. A large group of people. You should even think there would be some children running around as well. And these disciples ministered faithfully. Well, as you read through the Gospels, sometimes faithfully, sometimes less faithfully but but they were moving in the right direction as disciples in the midst of the same realities of life that all of you are living with. It's helpful for us to keep this picture in mind as you read through the Gospels. Otherwise, you might imagine that following Jesus the way that the first disciples did is only something that radical single young adults could do, or as the Catholic Church suggests, celibate priests can do. But that's not what the Bible tells us. These stories make clear that you can be sold out for Jesus while also having family obligations to look after. As R.T. France puts it, Simon and Andrew left their nets, but not their home or extended family. I like that, so I'm going to say that one again. This is from R.T. France. Simon and Andrew left their nets, but not their home or extended family. So after teaching the Sermon on the Mount, coming down the mountain, and dramatically healing the leper, and also the centurion servant, Jesus and his disciples arrive at Peter's house, and it's not hard to know what they were thinking. It was time to sit down and relax, get something to eat. We would say, take a load off, but they needed to be refreshed, Yet as they enter the home, Jesus discovers that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Um, I want to remind you, because I said this at the beginning, but it's really important for us to see that this account is all about Jesus. Jeffrey Gibbs puts it like this, Neither the crowds nor the disciples receive any attention in the terse description of events. After Jesus enters Peter's house, Jesus saw, Jesus touched, the fever left, and Peter's mother-in-law got up and began to serve him. It's all about him. The whole focus of the story is on Jesus. Now, intriguingly, in the earlier healings, neither the leper nor the centurion actually asked Jesus to do anything for them. They simply presented their need. But they did reveal a remarkable degree of faith. You know, the leper professes his complete confidence that Jesus is able to heal him of his leprosy, not something that he saw happen to his neighbors, that Jesus was completely able to heal him from his leprosy before Jesus had done anything for him. And you remember, the centurion, Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. The centurion says, you don't even have to come and see my servant, just say the word and he will be healed. And Jesus declares of this Gentile Roman soldier, I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. And yet, although Peter's mother doesn't ask Jesus for anything, she actually doesn't reveal faith in Jesus either you get that? Because sometimes people imagine that if you just have more faith, God will heal you. Actually, sometimes people say that to people. Just trust. And God will do wonderful things for you. That's true. Just trust. God will give you what you're asking for. Beloved, that is false. You remember the Apostle Paul three times asked the Lord to take away the thorn in his flesh. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. As Grant Osborne puts it, the center point in this passage is not the availability of healing to those who have enough faith, but the power of Jesus. While faith is central in the first two healings, it is not in every healing, and most definitely, faith does not create the healing. The power belongs to Jesus as I say, this is an important reminder to those who imagine. But they or others would be healed if they only exercised more faith. The power is not in the faith. It is in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this particular story, there is absolutely no reason to believe that Peter's mother-in-law had faith in Jesus Christ at all prior to Jesus healing her. And so Jesus enters the house. Jesus sees that Peter's mother in law is sick. He touches her hand and she is immediately healed. Then please pay close attention to what this woman does next. She rose and she began to serve him. That last word is important. Uh, I think there are two surprising things to notice in this very simple description. Um, You've all had fevers. Uh, Suppose you have a fever for several hours, and then the fever itself goes away. What do you want to do? I want to go take a nap. I want to sleep. So do all of you. This woman does not go to sleep. She rises up, and she serves Jesus. Here's what this points forward to. Jesus does not merely take away the source of her illness. Jesus restores her momentarily, to be sure, but in that moment... To wholeness. See, this is an eschatological sign. It's pointing to who Jesus is, but it's also pointing forward to what Jesus will do for all of his people in the age to come. See, see, the reason why you need to take a nap after you have a fever is the fever is the result of the curse, of the fall of mankind's rebellion against God. But so is your tiredness. And Jesus restores this woman to wholeness as a sign of what he's going to do for all of his people in the age to come. Jesus does not merely take away our guilt. He takes away all the consequences of our rebellion against God. And in that day, the healing will be permanent. We will say more about this at the end of the sermon when we look at verse 17 together. Second, there's an obvious physical response of this woman. Uh, she serves him. That is, almost certainly, she got up and got him something to drink, something to eat. How can I help you? How can I make you comfortable here? But it's very noticeable that she—it doesn't tell us what you would expect someone to do when they get up to serve around the house. She doesn't serve them. She's not just making herself useful now that she's helped, now that she's healthy. Her focus is on serving Jesus. I think this is a pointer to the fact that with her healing, being touched by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, she has now for the first time become one of his disciples. She is a follower of Jesus. She begins to serve him. this, This private, and I would say rather tender miracle, makes clear that Jesus has the power that each of us needs. You know, I, I suspect this mother-in-law did not think of herself as a particularly significant people person. You may not think of yourself as significant this morning, but you are significant in the eyes of God. Jesus has the power that you, as an individual, so desperately need to be forgiven, to be healed, to be restored, to be useful... For the sake of the kingdom of God. And yet, our Lord's gracious power is not restricted to a tiny minority. You know, you might have thought, well, mother in law, she's on the inside. Peter's like the most prominent of the disciples. Of course, Jesus would heal her. But the gospel is not restricted to a tiny minority, nor is our Lord's saving power. Jesus also has the power. That everyone needs. Please look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. They brought many. He healed all. Jesus has the power that all of us need. Now, as I mentioned, Mark tells us that the healing of the leper and the centurion servant took place on the Sabbath day. That would mean that when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, that took place on the Sabbath day as well. The Jewish Sabbath went from sundown to sundown. So when the sun goes down on that Sabbath day, many of the Jewish people would have felt a lot freer to move around town. And so they flock to Peter's house where they know Jesus is, and the door of the house becomes jam-packed with people who are saying, Lord, heal me. Lord, this is my friend. This is my sister. This is my child. And they're desperately seeking Jesus for physical healing, but also for spiritual healing as well. Through his teaching and through healing the sick, Jesus demonstrated his astonishing authority in both word and deed. Now, by casting out demons, the demons of every single person who comes to him, Jesus is demonstrating his unquestioned authority in the spiritual realm also. right, The centurion confessed that Jesus had complete authority over nature. Now we're seeing that Jesus has complete authority over the spirit's In particular, that is the demons, but of course he has authority over all of them. The fact that Jesus cast out spirits with a word echoes the confession of the centurion that we looked at last week. The Roman military officer had confessed, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now we see that Jesus has the same absolute authority over the spiritual realm. Regrettably, even some very, very fine commentators, um, I'll say inadvertently, lapse into describing what Jesus is doing as exorcisms. Uh, I'm not really sure why that happens, except they haven't thought about it very much. But beloved, Jesus is not performing exorcisms. No Bible-believing person, no one that trusts God in the Bible, ever performs an exorcism. I think it's important for you to understand the difference. Grant Osborne, once again, uh, Professor Osborne points out, the contrast with the first century magicians and exorcists is stark. Jesus needs no elaborate incantations or lengthy oaths imploring half the angels in heaven for help. Jesus' power is internal, inherent in his very being, and he is able to cure everyone brought to him and to defeat the powers of evil. Now, if you've ever seen a movie that involves exorcisms, uh, I'm not encouraging that, but some of you have seen them, or you're familiar with what the Roman Catholic Church does when it does these so-called exorcisms, you'll understand that they always involve a great deal of ritual. They involve sacred objects, Water, if it has been set aside and sanctified as holy, uh, uh, holy water, or a cross or something. Beloved, I want you to realize that that actually comes from pagan magic, not from biblical Christianity. I, I don't mean to cause any unnecessary offense, but I think it's important that you know this difference. Those are from pagan magic, not from biblical Christianity. The idea is is that you can use these techniques, these words, these special incantations so that you can control nature or maybe even kind of latch on to a spiritual being and cause them to have to come out as you throw holy water on them. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what the apostles do. Jesus simply speaks the word and out of his own authority, he casts the demons out. Consider... um, Apart from Jesus, even, the encounter that the Apostle Paul has with a demon-possessed girl in Acts chapter 16. If you're taking notes, this is from Acts chapter 16, and I'm going to be picking up in verse 16. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Did Paul engage in rituals and incantations? Did did Paul throw holy water on this girl? He did not. He spoke the word in Jesus' name and the demon came out of her. Beloved, please keep away from magic. Please keep away from pagan attempts at magic. And please do not imagine that pagan attempts at magic become less objectionable When they use Christian symbols like the cross, or when they do their incantations invoking the Lord's name. That is to take the Lord's name in vain. It's a sin. It isn't something that sanctifies pagan magic. Jesus' name is not a magic formula that gives people power, right? The reason why we call upon Jesus in prayer in his name is because we are in Christ. And we are trusting in him and his power. It's not something that he empowers us with so that we can do things with our words, with magic, or we can manipulate nature. Christ casts out the demons with a word of command and on the basis of his own intrinsic power. What difference does it make that Jesus is casting out demons? Well, the first thing is obvious. It demonstrates his absolute authority over these powers, right? but that's not all that it demonstrates. As Jesus himself will tell us a little later in his ministry, it also points to the fact that with his coming, all of history is being turned on a hinge. As Jesus will later tell us, if in connection with the spirit of God, I myself am casting out demons, then know for certain that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? Jesus casting out demons is a sign that the kingdom of God has crashed into history in the person of Jesus Christ. Now today, 20 centuries later, we have the privilege of serving in this kingdom. We have the privilege of seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and pouring our lives out that it would be advanced. But beloved, we do not bring in the kingdom. Jesus has already done that. And we will not consummate the kingdom either either. It is Jesus Christ in his own sovereign power who's brought in the kingdom, who is building the kingdom, and one day will consummate the kingdom, so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. We live in the time between those times. The kingdom has already been inaugurated, yet it has not yet been consummated. And that will help you as you think about this issue of supernatural healings in your own life. Let let us say quite squarely, there's not a lot of charismatics here in the congregation, but let us put it plainly. We do believe in the power of God to heal. We do believe that when we pray to God for him to bring his healing power into the presence of some of our loved ones, that sometimes he says yes, and he does that, not simply through external means, but he does it out of his own power and grace. Beloved, if you don't believe that, please see me today after the sermon. God is not dead, and he is in control of every molecule in your life. And he graciously sometimes brings healings into our lives. But you will get this wrong if you have what theologians call an over-realized eschatology. That because Jesus is healing some people here, that he must want to always heal everyone in the here and now. What Jesus is doing in this passage and throughout the Gospels... Are signs. They are signs that point to him as the Messiah. They are also signs of what will be true in the age that is to come. In this present age, as I mentioned earlier about the Apostle Paul, sometimes it's God's desire that you would show your faithfulness with continued suffering. Paul prayed three times that God would take this thorn out of his flesh. Would any of you dare to say that Paul didn't have enough faith? I mean, you need to go back and read the Gospels. He's probably the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Remarkable man of God. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. We need to hold both of those truths. We need to hold that truth not simply in our heads, but in our bones and our heart, that God's grace is sufficient for us with all the trials and tribulations that we might endure. And we also need to believe that God is able, if it is his will, to take those away from us like that. We have no reason to envy those in the first century. Um, I sometimes run into Christians who are like, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. Uh, Jesus could have touched me and healed me. You know, Jesus himself tells us, it's better for you that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. We have difficulty with that sometimes. But we have no reason to envy those in the first century whom Jesus healed as signpost to who he is and what one day he will certainly do for all his people. Beloved, the leper whom Jesus healed would get sick again, and one day he would die. The centurion servant whom Jesus healed would get sick again, and one day he would die. Peter's mother-in-law would get sick again, and one day she would die. See, these messianic signs are not about the leper, they're not about the servant, they're not about the mother-in-law. They are signs about who Jesus is and what he will one day do for all of his people. They are pointers to the fact that he will one day deliver every single one of his people permanently from Satan, from sin, and from death and that we will dwell in our Father's house forever. This Jesus has the power that each of us needs. This Jesus has the power that all of us need. Critically, Matthew wants us to see that this healing power of Jesus, this saving power of Jesus, all flows from the cross and from his life-giving death. Please look at verse 14 with me. I'm sorry, verse 17 with me. Verse 17. Speaking of the healing ministries, Matthew writes... This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. That, of course, is quoting from our Old Covenant passage in Isaiah 53 this morning. And the Hebrew of Isaiah 53 makes clear that when Jesus takes our illness, it doesn't mean that Jesus became sick like us. It means he was taking it away, removing it from us, through his work on the cross. When we confess that by his stripes we are healed, we are referring to the healing of the whole man and not just the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, there is a spiritual healing, as Jesus does take away our guilt, but there is ultimately also a healing from all the consequences of that guilt. See, Matthew is bringing those two things together. Jesus is telling us, God is telling us to Isaiah 53 about Jesus, that the coming Messiah is going to take away our guilt, but he's also going to ultimately take away all the consequences of that guilt. Now this is one of those places where it's important to be precise. Jesus takes away the consequences of our sin from us, not by taking those consequences upon himself, but by taking our guilt upon himself. That, of course, is why he dies. So when Jesus heals the leper with a touch, Jesus does not become leprous and unclean. Right? When when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, he doesn't himself get a fever. And needless to say, when Jesus casts out demons, he does not do that by himself becoming demon-possessed. If that sounds crazy to you, I say praise God, but I've actually seen commentators who have taken this in that wrong way, and it makes no sense at all. It's not what Jesus is doing. It's not what Matthew's telling us Jesus is doing. Rather, Jesus is taking out the root cause of all those ailments, all those problems and afflictions in this world. By taking your guilt upon himself on the cross, he tramples your guilt into the dust, and he rises again to newness of life. That is, Jesus is reversing the curse not by taking every single aspect of the curse upon himself, but by taking the root cause of the curse upon himself, which is mankind's rebellion against the living God. How does our Lord do this? Jesus does this by fully identifying with us as his people and then living the life that you and I should have lived and dying the death that you and I should have died in our place It isn't by becoming afflicted with health problems that Jesus delivers us from the consequences of our rebellion against God. It is rather by his stripes, that is his death on the cross, that we are healed. It is true that early Christian interpreters, including um, later in Matthew, in 1 Peter, and in Romans, commonly focus on how Isaiah 53 spoke of the Messiah dealing with our spiritual needs. Um, that's, That's the way we normally think of Isaiah 53. That's the main focus of the New Testament's treatment of Isaiah 53. But it's not all the New Testament says. In fact, it's not all that Isaiah says. Isaiah says a great deal about the Messiah. And not just that he would forgive our sins, but that he would heal the sick. That the deaf would hear, that the blind would see... And even the land itself would be healed. right? Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Consider these beautiful words from Isaiah chapter 35. These are about the coming of the Messiah. It's about that day, which to us is in the past, but to Isaiah was in the future. Isaiah writes, "...then the eyes of the blind shall be opened." and the ears of the death unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Well, let me get to the bottom line. Here's the key point. Christ's work to put away our sins includes reversing all, all, all of the consequences of the fall. Every single one of them. While we cannot draw a straight line between particular sins and particular physical problems, you remember the disciples making that mistake with the man born blind. If you keep reading the chapter, you'll find the religious leaders made the same mistake with the man born blind. You can't draw a direct line between any particular ailment. ...and any particular sin, the reason why there are ailments in the world at all is because of sin. COVID, cancer, broken legs, they are all the result of sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no cancer. There will be no broken legs. There will be no fevers. Jesus Christ on the cross has torn out the reason for the curse at its very roots... Through his resurrection, Jesus has ushered in new creation. Therefore, the healings we read about in the Gospels anticipate our Lord's passion and that they begin to roll back the effect of the sins for which Jesus came to die. Beloved, the continued groanings of creation that we still experience are now birth pains. We share in these groanings But we do so with the certain hope that Christ Jesus has come to make all things new. So when we consider the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and Christ casting out demons, we see that Christ's authority is sufficient for our needs. This doesn't mean that Christ will remove all our infirmities and hardships in this present life. I'm going to say it once again because it's the easiest way to remember it. The Apostle Paul three times pled with the Lord to take away his thorn in his flesh. And the Lord replied, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. This is an important truth for us to not only get, but to personally embrace And yet it is equally important to know deep down in our bones that Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. One day, the Lord will in fact wipe away every tear from your eyes. One day, all your physical infirmities and emotional struggles will be gone. One day, all the pains which come from ruptured relationships and sin in this world will be replaced with perfectly healthy and loving relationships, relationships that will last forever. All of these things are certain because Jesus Christ has already torn out the source of all these pains at their very root. Beloved, by his stripes, you are healed. Amen.